So speaking of the mind and emotions, uh, there is a story that, um, okay, a long, long time ago, when I, way before I started practicing Zen, I was feeling kind of depressed about something, and I lived in this, I was coming home from work, and I lived in this old farmhouse in Maryland with a few other people. And I was driving up this kind of long country driveway, feeling really depressed, like just full of dark, thick, depressive emotions. And I pull into the back of the house, and um, I, wa and I was hoping I didn't see any of my roommates. I think they had like three or four housemates. And I walk into the kitchen, and there's no one there. I'm like, yay. And then I go to my room, and then I come back to the kitchen, and boom, there's one of my housemates. She shows up. She walks to the back door, and she has this bouquet of beautiful, just sun-bursting daffodils in her hand. And I looked at her, and I said, wow, where, where'd you get those daffodils from? And she just stares at me incredulously, like, what? And so she leads me to the front door, and she op we go out through the front door. I almost never go through the front door. We go through the front door, and there in front of the house is this field of daffodils that I just drove past up the driveway. They were on my left-hand side. I did not even see all of these daffodils in this field, mm. right? It's because I was like this with the depression, right? It was, it was coloring the way I was viewing the world, so much so that I didn't even see this field of, you know, daffodils are pretty bright, right? Um, these daffodils. So I didn't really, I hadn't really thought about that story until I started practicing Zen and learning about the Buddhist, the way Buddhism views uh, emotions, right? So there's this really wonderful book which I have yet to finish, but I read sections of it. It's called Destructive Emotions by the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama and these philosophers and psychologists and neuroscientists talk all about what, what uh, the Buddhist view is of emotions. And in this book, um, Mathieu Ricard, and I'm not sure if you know who he is, but uh, he was a, I think he was a geneticist maybe in France, but he was a scientist who gave up being a scientist to go become a monk, I think maybe in Sri Lanka. And uh, he says the difference between the Western view of emotions and the Buddhist view is that the English word emotion comes from the Latin emovere, E-M-O-V-E-R-E. -E. And that means setting the mind in motion, right? Rather toward something harmful, neutral, or positive, right? Some kind of action. But in Buddhism, emotion means something that conditions the mind and makes it adopt a certain perspective or vision of things, right? So unlike in Western psychology, Buddhists don't refer to emotion like, oh, there's been a burst of anger or somebody's sobbing. I mean, that's obviously emotions. That's maybe more of a gross uh, expression of emotion. But for them, for them, I guess I'm a Buddhist, right? I don't know why I'm saying them. For us, <laughs> for Buddhists, <laughs> emotions um, actually alter the way, they're filters, right? That color the way we see what's going on uh, in the world, right? So these emotions are either constructive or destructive. And obviously destructive emotions are emotions that cause harm to ourselves or to other people when we uh, express them. And um, also, I thought this was interesting. They talk about constructive emotions like joy or appreciation. 
giving us a more correct, uh, this says more correct appreciation of what's actually happening. So even though everything is impermanent, all these phenomena, whether they're helpful emotions or constructive or destructive emotions, they're all going to pass through, right? They're all impermanent and they're all not who we are. They're passing through phenomena. Uh, but constructive emotions like joy or gratitude are not as thick of a filter, right? And they help us to see more closely the reality of what's going on. And they're usually, and then since they're not harmful, it's, it's, most people don't come to practice Buddhism because they're just so filled with joy all the time, right? I mean, that's possible. Um, many people come to Buddhism because they're experiencing some lack in their life or some um, suffering in their life or some um, dissatisfaction in their life. And then some people come because of the philosophy of Buddhism or living together in a community, right? So at the center, the vortex really of these destructive emotions is this sense of a small I, right? So um, most of us perceive ourselves as these independent, solid, abiding individuals that we're not connected to anything, right? So. I like to sometimes think of that like a closed fist, right? And then I'm, I'm in the middle of this closed fist, and that's how I go about the world, that I'm, I'm in control of everything. <laughs> I'm imposing my, my views on everybody and on the world, right? Um, so this is like a, and this is often what I call too, like um, when suffering arises, it's usually because we have, we're clasping onto something, some belief about ourselves usually, and, or some emotion, right? Thought emotion, thought sensation, okay? And then the, the tighter we believe a story about ourselves or someone else, right? The more that we reify this, um, usually the more we're suffering. And often, you know, again, this is, a lot of this is for you all to explore for yourselves. Often when there's a lot of thoughts coming at us, and we don't feel any space between those thoughts, it's really hard to stay settled. And it's really hard to feel any space between those arising thoughts, right? They're just coming at us so much. And um, that kind of clutter of the mind uh, can be actually uh, uh, emotionally painful, right? Sometimes even, um, Physically, it can obviously mind body is not um, they're not separate. So obviously, the way when I was depressed, I didn't cause my roommate any harm, right? She had the daffodils. I was surprised. She showed me where the daffodils were, but it did, like I said, hindered my ability to see all this beauty in the middle of my suffering. And my friend who lived in Washington D.C., she came over shortly thereafter, and we sat in the meadow. I was still depressed, but at least I could see the daffodils, right? <laughs> you know? the, the, seeing the daffodils, sitting in the meadow with my friends, still didn't necessarily help that depression lift, but um, at least I was more present uh, in the moment, sitting outside with her in the field there. Um, and I think, you know, there's this teacher that I really love that if, if you're not familiar with her, I recommend reading everything she's ever written. Her name is Sherry, C-H-E-R-I, Huber, H-U-B-E-R. And um, she has a book called There's Nothing Wrong With You. She has tons of books. Um, and I'm not sure why I'm mentioning her. 
Anyway, well, she is rock star. And I, I went down to her monastery and did a, did a workshop down there. And yeah, she was, she's really amazing. Um, so I'm not sure. Oh, because what she says is that when you are feeling depressed, it is helpful to go outside. Because often when we're depressed, you know, we feel constricted. And then if we go out, especially here where we have such access to nature, you know, you can just go across the bridge or just down to the water and you get the, a bigger perspective, right? And still it may not lift those clouds of depression or anger or whatever it is, but at least you, f you remember it broadens your view and you're not, so, you're not so stuck, you know? Or at least you're sitting, you're depressed but you're by the ocean. That's probably better than maybe being depressed and being in your room, I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, so when these heavy emotions like depression or anxiety afflict our minds, right, our worldview shrinks. And then we feel more and more solid and more and more disconnected from what's going on around us, okay? Um, because of our perceptual process, our perceptual apparatus, our sense organs, which includes the mind. So we have the five senses, and then we have the mind as the sixth sense organ, which is something I had never heard of until I began practicing Buddhism, right? So the mind, the mind is the sixth sense. So all the other um, sense doors, um, so tasting, touching, seeing, hearing, right? That's all goes through the mind door, right? So the mind is how all that sensory, uh, how all those sensory stimuli are actually processed, right? So everything's going to be affected because it's, it's not like the sounds go somewhere else, right? Everything goes through the mind door. And the mind door is more of a word that the Theravada or Vipassana people would use than Zen people. Um, switch my legs here. Oh. So, um, you know, when we find ourselves thinking, acting, and speaking from that small sense of self, right, that constricted sense, we're really just kind of stuck in our karma, and we keep perpetuating our karma, because we're, we just, um, as you probably have heard, you know, experiences for yourself, we often run into our projections, right? We, we have these projections and then we end up, um, yeah, that becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Um, and there is this word in, used in Buddhism called becoming or bhava that is when we are continuing to be conditioned in the same way over and over. And this usually, most of this usually happens when we're children, right? We learn many things from our family and our friends and those habits of body-mind, some of them are really wonderful and others of them are, are not so wonderful, right? So um, often what we are doing by practicing zazen is becoming more intimate with those habit patterns of body and mind and trying to learn more about how can we interrupt these harmful patterns that we might have. Okay, so the, uh, in the Buddhist scriptures, they, I don't know how anyone, <clears throat> excuse me, would count this, but uh, in this book, Destructive Emotions, they say that there's 84,000, again, I don't know how, negative emotions. 84,000. But fortunately for us, they've been distilled into five, um, what they call the five hindrances.
okay? And these are the desire for sensual pleasure, ill will and aversion, those are together. Right? So you're angry at somebody and you're or angry and you're also avoiding them, right? Sloth and torpor, again a pair, restlessness and remorse, and then corrosive doubt. Okay. So what do these five hinder? Okay. So they impede our ability to sit still on the cushion so our bodies and minds can relax or peacefully abide what um, we call shamatha, like this settling, this calming. Right? I don't know. It felt pretty calm during that last meditation. I was like, wow, this is, feels really good in here, you know? Um, so uh, when, we're, when the mind's not able to settle, usually the body has difficulty settling and vice versa, right? They're, all, they're connected, right? So if we're unable to calm the body-mind, then we're not able to stay in meditation. And so these afflictions, these mental afflictions, these hindrances, that's what they do. They hinder our ability to sit in meditation. They hinder other things as well. And, you know, one of the goals of practicing meditation, um, I think I might have talked about the three marks of existence uh, when we were all were online. But one of the purposes of practicing meditation, which Zen people don't talk about necessarily, but Vipassana people do, which is what May May practices, and Kodo also practices Vipassana, is the three marks of existence and practicing meditation to help us experience, have an embodied experience of the three marks of existence. And those three marks our existence are suffering, impermanence, and then this not so easy thing to remember which is called the not-self characteristic. And we'll just put that one aside for now. Um, but the not-self characteristic, basically what it means is we don't, we're not who we think we are. We're not solid, we're always in flux, and we're interdependent, we're co-arising with everything and everyone, every single moment, right? So we often see ourselves like this, but in fact, we're flowing, constantly flowing, okay? Um, so the, part, the practicing of meditation is having this uh, <clears throat> calm abiding, the shamatha, and also insight, which is what the word vipassana actually means, is insight. And insight, in, insight into what? These three marks of existence. Suffering, everything's impermanent, and we're not these independent, solid selves, okay? So if we drop the labels uh, of these um, hindrances, you know, just drop that, the names and really think about or feel the energy, right? Um, we can maybe get more in touch with what these hindrances feel like for us, right? So the sensual pleasure is often this grasping energy, right? Ill will, ah, pushing, pushing away. <laughs> Pushing away life. You could have ill will, obviously, toward yourselves, toward a situation, toward other people, um, even people we've never met. Um, sloth and torpor, or this lethargy and drowsiness, is a collapsing energy, like inside out, where the girl is always sad and she's just constantly and hilariously continuing to fall on the, on the floor. <laughs> uh, which, if you haven't seen it, I totally recommend watching it. It's, a, it's really wonderful. Restlessness and remorse is an overactivation, 
right? Just, oh, I can't settle, I can't settle. You feel like you're go, your mind or body is going a mile, a mile a minute, right? So that's overactivation. The sloth and torpor is a collapsing energy. Ill will is pushing away, and desire is this grasping. And then corrosive doubt is what I call like, the, like a vacillating energy, maybe like a ping, I call it ping pong mind. Should I stay in my job? Should I leave my job? Should I break up with my partner? Should I buy a dog? Should I not buy a dog? I don't want this dog, I want that. You're just like, right? So again, it's not so much about the content. What's the energy, right? What's that energy of this vacillation, right? So it's like dropping that content, dropping the story, and being with the energy with these hindrances. Okay? So the desire for sensual pleasure, I think that's pretty um, self-explanatory. Um, I think it's probably embedded in most animals to move away from pain and to seek pleasure, or definitely to move away from pain, right? So we move away from unpleasant sensations and we grasp onto pleasant ones. And as I was talking before about we can sometimes get obsessive about something. I'm sure you've all experienced this. Um, when it comes to like food. You, maybe you're not hungry and then all of a sudden you walk past the boba guys and then you think, oh boba, I don't need a boba, there's all that sugar, boba, but the boba thing looks cool, people will think I'm cool from carrying the boba thing. I'll, and right, so then the mind just all of a sudden you're, you want a boba, right? That's obviously how marketing works. The salt and straw, what do they just like pump out that amazing smell from there? As you walk by, it's like, it's like, oh my God, you know, you walk by like, no, just leave me, you know, just, uh, what is this? It should be illegal. I don't even know what it is, like a sugar cone smell or something, I don't know. So, right, so, so then um, the mind starts to obsess about these things, right? So then we, we grasp on, we look for sensual pleasure. And it's not saying that, obviously, you know, there's nothing really wrong with pleasure. It's just watching us get conditioned to always, to, to grasp that. Because we think we're avoiding the suffering in our lives, but we're actually not. Because if that salt and straw, which by the way is like, what, $25 for a quart or something? If that really solved our issues, then we, wouldn't, we only need to do it once if it was really cathartic. But it's not really solving anything. And I remember this teacher, I read in a book, of, again, a Theravadan book, where it's like, it's not the fulfillment of desire that causes the desire to stop, it's actually the cessation of the desire itself that's the liberation, right? So it's not like, oh, boba tea, salt and straw, Mini Cooper, 6,250, I got everything I want, right? No, because then the mind wants more. When I lived at the monastery and I had to share a bathroom in the summer with all these people, I just wanted my own bathroom. And now my spouse and I live in the apartment building and we have a one, we have a one bedroom, one bath. I'm like, I want two bathrooms, right? It's like, wait a second. Before you weren't satisfied when you had to share a bear, you had to walk out of your room, share two stalls with 25 people, all of them kind of young, and then you wanted your own bathroom. Now you have your own bath, but now you want two bathrooms, right? You see, it's like crazy, right? So it's about how can we notice when the mind and body are grasping after sensual pleasure. Usually it's the mind, because um, the body is not like wanting things necessarily unless, you know, the body mainly just wants to maintain homeostasis, right? But, homost but we get 
the mind makes us hungry, the mind leads us around, okay? Um, so I'm sure, again, we're all familiar with the sensual pleasure and um, watching really what that feels like, right? The grasping mind, whether it's for the salt and straw, the boba, the bell ringing, okay? Again, it's not about the content, it's about the energy of grasping. And then ill will and aversion, Again, this can be very subtle or gross. Sometimes you don't feel any aversion towards someone or a situation, and then all of a sudden there you are, and then there's something, you get triggered by them somehow, right? And sometimes you don't even notice that. Maybe it's not such a big explosion inside, and other times it's, it, it can be, and other times it can be really subtle. And you may not be able to even know what it is exactly about that person's presence that's triggering you, okay? but but. To be clear, you're responsible for what's going on for you, not that other person, right? So this aversion um, can sometimes be overwhelming, right? Um, this kind of resistance toward life, what's being presented in life. And then also, obviously, if aversion becomes so strong, uh, it can be hatred. And we've seen a lot of that in our country over the last so many years, where people then justify acts of violence because that person believes this or that person doesn't believe that, right? That aversion becomes so strong, it's like a perceptual knot. And from that perceptual knot, that delusion that we are separate, somehow people get so twisted that they perpetuate um, violence on others, which is really violence, obviously, on themselves. And usually making peace is all about making peace within ourselves, right? Because the more spaciousness, the more patience, the more compassion we have for what's arising within us, then the more space and compassion we have for other people because we're not trying to control them, manipulate them, and we're able to be with them because we're not, because we're able to be with ourselves more. Right? So part of, for me anyway, part of practicing Zazen is um, opening to myself, allowing when I'm on, you know, allowing for whatever's arising on this cushion to be included, right? Nothing excluded, right? Everything's included when we're on the cushion. When we're off the cushion too, but sometimes that's not so easy. And then of course there's sloth and torpor, which I'm sure we've all experienced, where we're just collapsing and don't really want to do something. Um, and sometimes we use caffeine or Red Bull or sugar uh, to, get, to get through that uh, sloth. Um, and I think actually sometimes, especially if we're meditating and we start to drift off, if it's a pattern to kind of nod off whenever you're meditating, it might be that there's something you're trying to avoid. And again, this is to explore. It could just also be that you're tired, but if it happens at different periods in the morning or the afternoon, it might be that there's some way in which we're avoiding something. And then, as I mentioned about this restlessness, restlessness and remorse. So, you know, remorse, <coughs> we have, um, you know, as a Catholic, I grew up with the Ten Commandments, um, which already sounds pretty aggressive. <laughs> it's like, wait a second, and patriarchal. Um, 
I'm commanding you to do certain thing. But I think many religions, I, th I can't say all of them, but many religions have these guidelines. And in Zen, we call them the precepts. Same with um, Theravada. There's these guidelines, the way that we are trying to live our lives in harmony with ourselves and others and the environment. And so remorse, oh, you know, especially if you're meditating and especially if you're living in community and you see this person over and over again, you're like, oh, I can't believe that I said this negative thing about this person. Or I can't believe that I took that when I wasn't supposed to take it. Or I can't believe, right? So that remorse often can keep us from settling on the cushion because we did something that we feel remorseful about, okay? And rest, you know, so the restlessness and remorse are this overactivation, right? Sloth is this collapsing energy, and restlessness and remorse is this overactivation. So before I started practicing Zen, I would get really excited about things, you know? My spouse, not excited about things, <laughs> right? So it's like, guess what? We just won a red Ferrari. Oh, really? Yeah. Red for it's a, you know, so that overactivation can also uh, prevent us from settling on the cushion, even if it's a good thing to be excited, something wonderful to be excited about, right? So again, it's not prohibitions, it's just noticing what is this energy of, what is the energy and how is it affecting me, okay? And then this doubt, um, this isn't, uh, so this is like, a, I say corrosive doubt, they use this word corrosive because it's not like a questioning, right? I mean, we're, for me, um, what I like about practice, what I like about Buddhism, many things, and one is that it's about, the question is most important. Asking the question is most important rather than looking for answers or, knowing, or feeling like you have a certain answer, right? So this corrosive doubt is different. It's not questioning. It's more like sowing confusion or uh, indecisiveness in us, like I said before about that ping pong. So this is like a vacillating energy, an energy that makes you feel really um, uncomfortable and maybe even a little bit bitter. Um, and I think that this might be sometimes a difficult one because then there's that other word called faith, which depending on your relationship to that word um, may make you feel uncomfortable. So I think the thing about this doubt is just, if it's an undermining doubt, right, um, to pay attention to that. But if it's just like a questioning of what someone's saying to you in the Buddha hall, or when you're reading something, oh, it's not self-characteristic, let me really explore this, right? Like the Buddha said, you learn this for yourself, right? I'm laying out, I'm giving you the teachings, and you have the, your own experiences and check in with a teacher, someone who maybe has gone before you, that's what the word sensei means, someone who's gone before, and see what they say, right? So it's not this questioning doubt, it's a, a corrosive doubt that sort of chips away, chips away at you, chips away at your faith, chips away at your practice, right? Maybe you could say like this, um, you know, like a lack of confidence in what you're doing, right? Maybe even a lack of, I hate this, self-worth, just, something that's chipping away at you, okay? Um, so I, I feel that what meditation practice can also help us with is, because we can't change anything if we're not aware, right? So 
when we can start to remember these hindrances and remember and become more intimate with what's arising while we're meditating, then sometimes that label is helpful. Like, oh, I'm collapsing, I'm feeling, you know, kind of slothful right now, or, oh, I'm just overly excited, or, and so sometimes just naming, just being aware of what's going on, becoming more intimate, which is what Zazen's all about, is becoming more intimate with what's going on for us, then that can help us begin to understand um, how we can work with what's arising in the body and the mind. Right? And there are these antidotes for the hindrances, and maybe I'll, I'll give another talk about that. There, there are ways in which that we can identify the hindrance and then um, apply the antidote to it. Right? So um, I just wanted to talk about the hindrances because I think it's helpful and since they're universal and you can start to notice what goes on for you with maybe with that schema.